please open with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 2. And we're going to be focusing on the first four verses of that chapter. Uh, for those of you who are studying the Old Testament survey downstairs, you'll recall that 1 Kings pertains to what? That's right, Solomon. And what do we know about Solomon? Yes, he had a half heart for God. Uh, that was, of course, King Solomon, the son of King David. At the very end of David's life, when he saw that he could no longer prolong his days, when King David saw that he was growing weaker and weaker and his steps were less stable, his red hair had turned white, King David took his son Solomon aside and gave him this final caution. Uh, some people would suggest that he was on his deathbed, and it would be much more dramatic if we were to uh, focus on David uh, grasping his son's thigh and then zooming into his face and watching these last words of King David to his son in regards to what kind of a man, what kind of a king he ought to be. Uh, however, that's not what the text says. The text tells us uh, the following. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying... And so we don't know exactly when this happened, other than to say that uh, these were his last days. Maybe it was his deathbed, but it doesn't seem to be that at all. And here he reminds his son Solomon of what he had instilled in his son over the years as Solomon was growing up and into his adult years. And David recounts the great foundation stone of manhood. He tells his son that manhood is not established through riches and power. Rather, manhood is defined and created through the observance of God in one's life and the worship of God. These two principles, riches and power, are not stable foundations for life, and observance of God's word and worship of God are the greatest foundations for a man. Um, by the way, it's also the greatest foundation for a family and for a nation. These two principles are probably the most overlooked truth in our lives. These two principles not only go against the world's natural way of thinking, it often burns, unfortunately, even in the Christian conscience. Many Christians struggle with this reality. And the lure of the way of the world is very attractive very compelling. And we often wonder, is this true? And we would like to find out for ourselves whether or not riches and power are stable foundations for life. My friends, true religion, that is, biblical religion, is a friend of your soul. True religion is a friend to your family and to your government. Whereas the state is not to constitutionally interfere with religion, listen, a state without the influence of true religion will become despotic. It will become an autocratic tyranny, as we see happening in, in China. Obedience to God and worship of God bring about wisdom and success. David is facing here the unavoidable result of living in a sin-filled world. He's facing death. 
Death is absolutely common, but it is not natural. Uh, David here says at verse 2, I am about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I am about to do what every person on this world in history does. Die. Death is an interruption of God's original plan for mankind. What would you say to your dearest person when you are about to die? What advice would you give? What would you remind her of? What would you remind him of? David's last piece of instruction to his son Solomon is recorded here. And he tells his son two things. One for his personal life and then for his public life. In regards to his personal life, he says, Son, obey God's word and worship God only. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then in regards to your public life as the next king of Israel, he says, deal rightly with those in your government who are treacherous, beginning at verse 5 to the end. Our focus this morning will be on the first piece of advice, verses 1 to 4. Obey God's word and worship God only. Elderly King David, after reigning some 40 years, gives this advice to his son in two parts. Let's take a look at the phrase, be strong, be a man. Now, verse 2 says that David looked to his son and said, Son, Solomon, have strength. Now when he says have strength, he's not saying, Son, I want you to start hitting the gym or running a six-minute mile. Uh, rather, he's talking here about strength in terms of inner person. Uh, strength in terms of character and courage. Strength that comes from the inside, molded by the brilliant principles of God that define uprightness and virtue. He says, have strength, be strong, and be a man. Show yourself a man is how the ESV renders it. Again, he's not saying, son, I want you to grow a beard. I want you to go hunting and fishing. He's not saying, son, be a man. I want you to be attractive to women or drive a nice car. No, he's saying, son, I want you to stand with God as your strength. Be a man. Do not be a man of fear or timidity, but live with a particular decisiveness and determination as you lean on God. On this Father's Day, I want to place emphasis on what it means to be a man, what it means to be strong. I've met many of men who are decisive and determined, but they do not lean on God, and as a result, they have wreaked havoc in their homes and wherever they lead. To be a man means that you are indeed decisive. You're determined to get the tasks done. But you do so as you wait on God, as you learn from God, as you lean on God. You are dependent on God. That's true manhood. And David knew where to find his strength. He knew it would be from God alone in order for him to act like a man. And he's telling his son to do likewise. Then David explains the manhood, what manhood looks like. 
Uh, beginning of verse 3, he explains what manhood looks like and how to be a man. But before we look at verse 3, let me just uh, take a little uh, side trip here and speak to you young women, young girls, who are not yet married but may very well hope to someday be. Let me give you some pastoral advice as to what kind of a guy you should look for. I would suggest this. Look for men who know godly manliness. Look for men who portray manliness as God defines it. Not as the world defines it. You see, how the world defines manhood or manliness versus how God defines manliness is completely different. Look for manliness that correlates with what God has defined as being manly. That means you would have to avoid men who are still boys and who will refuse to grow up. Avoid those boys, those men boys, who simply don't want to grow up or who want all the freedoms of manhood, but not the responsibilities of manhood. Avoid those men who are unable to identify what being a man is. In fact, you might want to ask that question to that young man who finds favor in your eyes and your heart. You might say, honey, so, so in your opinion, what would you say it means to be a man? And listen to that individual. And if he gives you a biblical answer you might want to continue pursuing that relationship. However, if he cannot give you a biblical understanding of what it means to be a man, you might want to say, ooh, look at the time. I better get home. And the next time he asks you out, you might want to tell him that you can't go because, well, maybe you have to wash your hair. Look for men. Look for a man who is able to identify what it means to be a man. And one who understands that gender exists. That is to say, avoid men who believe that gender is a matter of feelings. Avoid men who feel instead of know. Avoid men who cannot tell you the difference between male and female as God designed it. You know, for the first time in history, we are now identifying ourselves sexually, holistically, based on feelings. Not who I am, but who I feel I am. Keep in mind that feelings fluctuate, very much so, as you grow older. In short, I can say this, young ladies, avoid men who avoid Jesus Christ. Avoid those men who avoid Jesus Christ. Rather, look for a man who loves Christ even more than he loves you. Who loves Jesus Christ more than he loves you. Because if he loves Jesus Christ more than he loves you, he will love you deeply and appropriately. You will be loved. You will be satisfied. You will be cared for. If he loves Christ even more. Just a few pieces of advice for those of you who are looking to someday be married. 
I can't say that never did I think that this little phrase, be a man, would be so controversial. It sounds so misogynistic. It sounds like David is saying to his son, son, I want you to become a member of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. It's a phrase that is now so out of sync with our culture. Manhood is certainly being canceled. We have gotten rid of family, we have gotten rid of faith, and now we are getting rid of fatherhood as well. And we wonder why this world has become so broken. Why our culture has so many young men in particular who are lost. But it's not just manhood that's being canceled. Womanhood is being canceled too. Uh, pregnant women today are now being called childbearing persons. And it's, instead of identifying men as men and women as m- women, uh, what some groups are actually doing are using uh, anatomy to describe men and women. And it becomes rather crass. Transgenderism has risen in the last five years substantially. In fact, according to the Williams Institute, it has doubled from 2017 to 2022. From 150,000 between the ages of 17 to 24 to 300,000 who claim to be transgender. The highest population of uh, children from the ages of 13 to 17, or teenagers from the ages of 13 to 17, the highest population in America is in the state of New York, and I would assume much of it has to do with New York City. And to my surprise, next to last, in terms of numbers of transgender teenagers ages 13 to 17, next to last is New Jersey, right here where we live. I expect it to be much higher on the list. Wyoming is last. And so New Jersey is just just a little more percentage-wise than Wyoming in terms of how many transgenders we have. Transgender growth, according to the New York Times, has much to do with social media. The Times said the social media has been a significant catalyst for teenagers questioning their gender identities. And it's not just social media. I would add public schools. Public education certainly is a promoter of this idea of being gender neutral or gender confused. Gender flexibility. And it's not just our public schools, but it is an overly sexed culture stimulating young people and bringing confusion to our youth during a time in which they are generally confused to begin with in terms of sexuality. And we're doing so without any moral guide whatsoever. There is no moral compass, and so anything goes. And this is the result. But this is not how it was in the beginning. You'll recall that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By divine design, we have two genders, male and female. And those are absolutes. 
One is not greater than the other, but each complement the other. And that gender is determined not by your feelings, not by your situation, but by objective DNA and anatomy. They cannot be changed, not naturally, not ever. Operations could be had, hormones could be suppressed, but the gender remains the same. You'll notice that nowhere in the Bible are you ever asked, have you discovered who you are yet? Nowhere in the scriptures are we ever asked, well, do you, do you feel like you're someone else? Or who do you feel that you are? And again, for the first time in our American history, we now identify ourselves sexually according to our changing and subjective feelings. Well, here in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, David explains to his son Solomon how to be a man. He said, son, be a man, be strong. And now he explains how to be a man, and he does so in two parts. And the first one is this, verse 3. He says, protect what has been entrusted to you. This is how it reads. Quote, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Keep, meaning watch over, be faithful to, preserve the charge. What charge? Uh, Referring to the responsibility that was given to you. Referring to the function, to the command that was entrusted to you. We could paraphrase it this way. Solomon, preserve the responsibility entrusted to you. How are you to be a man? By preserving the responsibility entrusted to you. It is a call to be faithful. Now this is true in terms of manhood, uh, because that's our text is just about that, be a man. And David explains to his son what it means to be a man. And of course we are addressing fatherhood today or Father's Day. Manliness, manhood. But this is also a principle that's true for women. Although womanhood looks different than manhood, it still requires that you protect what has been entrusted to you. It is also a calling to women to be faithful. Manhood is defined by one's faithfulness to the task that God gives to you. Womanhood is also defined by one's faithfulness to the task entrusted to us by God through difficulties and through changes to remain faithful. Now, faithfulness requires two elements. One is courage. Number two is trust in God. And both come from God, and so faithfulness requires faith in God. At the heart of biblical masculinity is a willingness to lead, to provide, and to protect. In other words, preserve what God has entrusted to you. You'll notice here that David does not say to his son, well, son, when you are uh, accustomed to wearing this crown, when you have grown accustomed to being the new monarch of the land, then you apply these principles. No, he didn't say that. Neither did he say, listen, son, these are very important words for when you get older, 
so listen now so you can apply it then. No, he's saying right here from the get-go, son, be responsible, be a man, be faithful and carry out the calling God has given you. Every Christian has a calling. Every Christian has a calling which God expects you to faithfully carry out. Your calling may be to be a husband or to be a son. A calling may be to be a wife or a daughter, an employer or an employee, a church member or a Christian within the community of believers. Every Christian has a calling. And you are to be true to your calling. You are to be serious about the calling that God has bestowed on you. I like how Paul Tripp is able to speak very bluntly, but he does so always very kindly. And he says this in regards to your calling. He says, every Christian has been drafted into God's service without a vote. At the point of your conversion, at the point in which God regenerated your soul and gave you new life, when you placed your faith in repentance in Christ, you were given a calling. And you were drafted into the service of God. And in all honesty, as Tripp says, that calling came without your vote. God said, this is what I have for you. Now, that's a good thing because our God is good and our God is wise and our God wants to use us appropriately. He wants us to serve him in a way that he has enabled us. But you are drafted into his service. God has positioned you so never lack in your service to God. Persevere in whatever that calling may be. Faithfully serve. And never neglect your calling. Manhood is defined by one's faithfulness to the task that God gives to you. That was the first point. Still in verse 3, now David explains to his son Solomon a second way of acting like a man. And this one, I think, is probably far more surprising. Look there at verse 3. There David tells his son to determine to obey God. These are his words. Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. The law of Moses being the Bible they had at the time. That's all that there was. Uh, So David is telling his son, obey the Bible. How? By walking in God's ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. And why do I say it's surprising? Well, I I say it's surprising because uh, the idea of obeying God and manhood usually are are not words we ideas we put together and we put in the same line. Uh, we, we think of the two as being opposites. When we think of manhood, we think of brawny independence. On the other hand, when many people think of obedience to God, they think of maybe a man who's a bit wimpy, introverted, uh, independent, introspective, but certainly not a man who is macho. And just consider all the portrayals of ministers and priests and movies and sitcoms. I often complain and my wife chuckles because this is how the world views a person like me who happens to be a minister in the Church of Christ. 
you'll notice that the bulk of these characters are either scoundrels who pray and deceive parishioners, or more often, cowardly, indecisive men who run from conflict and give pat answers to serious questions. Cowardly, indecisive men who give pat answers to life questions. But you'll notice here that the Bible associates manhood with obedience to God. Manhood and obedience to God come together. That is to say, you cannot have manhood, true manhood, without obedience to God. David says, walk in God's ways. How? By keeping his statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies. Now, these words are almost repetitious, aren't they? They are nearly synonymous. There's very little difference between one and the other. So why is David being repetitious? Well, he's telling his son, he's saying, Son, true manhood comes when you obey the totality of God's law. True manhood comes about in you when you obey the totality of God's law. That is radical fidelity to the word of God. Radical fidelity. So that this radical fidelity, this radical loyalty to the word of God will shape your values and will determine even the words you choose to use. This fidelity to the word of God will shape your goals and your dreams, your work ethic. It will determine how you treat others and even how you think about others. This radical fidelity to the Word of God will mold how you think as well as the desires of your heart. It will determine how you worship. It will determine your loyalty. It will shape how you love. How you love others and how you love yourself. True manhood requires a wholehearted devotion to God. In biblical manhood, which is manhood in general, true manhood is biblical manhood, the Bible becomes your guide. The word of God becomes your instructor for all that you do. Now lastly, David explains not only the characteristic of manhood, but also the benefits of manhood in the very last part of verse 3 and in verse 4. Notice here that God's man reaps God's rewards. God's man reaps God's rewards. Biblical manhood is defined by one who reaps benefits from the blessings of God. In fact, biblical manhood means that you live a life in search of God's reward. The godly man, the godly man is one who eagerly seeks out the reward of God and wants those rewards not from the hands of man, but from the hands of God. He wants God to bless him. Now you'll notice that Solomon starts out rather well, but he seriously fails. 
Uh, we saw the wisdom of Solomon as we read from Proverbs 4 earlier this morning. And we see here in this text that he starts off well. He longs for and he gains the rewards. But then suddenly the lure of the world becomes so great and he begins to seek out the rewards of man instead of the rewards of God. Verse 4 reads this way. This is the promise being made to God, uh, rather from God to David and now from David to Solomon. It says that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons, David, pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Here's the promise, that if your children, David, walk according to my ways, there will never be a lapse in the monarchy, in the throne of Judah from the line of David. And as you well know, um, this has ceased a long time ago, beginning with Solomon. God promised that if Solomon and his descendants remained faithful to God, there would be reward. There would never be a lapse in the monarchy. David's lineage would continue to rule from the throne. It is a conditional promise that says, if you do this, then I will do that. Notice here that godly manhood is marked by a life that pursues God's rewards and blessings. That's what true manhood is about. Yes, I want to be blessed. Yes, I want to be rewarded. But from the hand of God and not from this world. I think this is one of the greatest challenges the church faces today. We tend to prefer the rewards of the world over the rewards of God, as if the rewards of the world would somehow satisfy us. And the truth is, is that God has very intentionally designed us so that what comes from him and only those things that come from him will actually satisfy you. Your soul will otherwise be longing. You, you, you may find some degree of contentment, but it will. What the world offers will pacify you only for a short time. It's like eating Chinese food. You're quickly full, but in an hour or two, you're hungry all over again. So it is with the benefits of man, the benefits of this world. And Solomon sought that out very much so, and eventually he found it, a great deal of it. But you'll notice here that not only does the godly man seek out the benefits, the rewards of God, but the godly man is also promised the rewards of God. Verse 3 says, the very end of verse 3, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. God will bring success in all that the godly man does and wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, if he is godly, God is going to be blessing him. There is a direct correlation between obedience and success. A direct correlation between obedience to God and success from the hand of God. Real prosperity comes to the one who obeys God's word 
and worships God only. Well, my friends, in closing here, let me just note to you that to obey God's word and worship God only is the foundation of real manhood. It is the foundation of fatherhood. It's the foundation of governance. As we read through 1 Kings, we quickly learn that Solomon's devotion to God was more so based on an effort to imitate his father, David. He was more, I think, interested in imitating his father than he was in being devoted to God. In fact, as you read through 1 Kings, you discover that soon Solomon has no heart for God at all. What he had seems to me a short-lived determination to make his father proud. And eventually, with time, he was more interested in what the world offered over what God was willing to reward him with. And he does live a long life with great power, great possessions, a very wealthy man, many adventures, many opportunities, great respect and pomp. In fact, he was the envy of many world rulers. But this elderly man concludes at the end of his life, written in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is empty. He says it was all vanity. Worthless. Happiness, he concludes, is like catching the wind. And as soon as it is caught, happiness disappears. Unfortunately for him, it was at the very end of his life that he turns back to the God of his father. After having wasted his life in all the rewards of the world, he finally turns back to the father, to the God of his father, to the heavenly father. And he finds life at the end of his life. But the son of David, who would be the prime example of manhood, would not come directly and immediately from the lineage of David. It would be many generations later on that we would find the son of David once again on the throne. He was indeed strong and courageous. He would be one who would hear his father's call and carry it out. One with a determination to obey his father. He would be the one who would reap his father's reward. His name is Jesus Christ. And it is this Christ who comes to you from the heavenly father and calls you to come to him and to lay your life at his feet, believe in him and know real life true life on this Father's Day.